Last Lord's Day, we began to build a bridge between the first section in this book, which is which just dealt basically with the general constitution of a true and orderly gospel church, into the second section, main heading number two, which is entitled, The Work of a Pastor, Bishop, or Overseer. And we moved into the topic of pastoral authority. And the question that we began with was, what authority, if any, do the elders of a church have over the congregation? That's the question. What authority, if any, do the elders of a church have over the congregation? We started by noting that there are two extremes that we can fall into. The first is to say that the elder has supreme authority, or elders have supreme authority. The other extreme is to say that the pastor or elder or elders have no authority whatsoever, and, and I would suggest that what we find in Scripture is that both of those extremes are wrong, but rather the Scripture paints for us a very happy and pleasant middle ground, a middle, uh, middle of the road between those two extremes. Authority, we defined or, or read a definition given to us, authority is defined as legal power or a right to command or to act as the authority of a prince over subjects and of parents over children. And it was ironic that that definition uses those two categories of authority which most Christians do not argue with. You don't, you don't find very many Christians who would say, well, the civil magistrate has no authority. Or parents really have no authority. You, you don't really find that, but very often you will find Christians who will say, well, the elders of the church have no authority. And, and that's if we, if we categorize these spheres of authority properly, it wouldn't be right to say one thing of these other two spheres and then say the complete opposite of the third. We can use sort of the same pattern to trace all three of them. In the civil sphere, using the term their prince, for us it would probably be considered the, the constitution of our nation. But in the civil sphere, the prince, the constitution, the civil magistrate is not the absolute unquestioned authority. If he or our constitution commanded sin, we would be required to disobey because we understand that God is our ultimate authority. God forbids sin, and so it doesn't matter who, what, what lower or lesser magistrate there might be. If God says you may not sin, then if that's commanded, we must disobey. That's proving we understand God is supreme. God is the only supreme, unquestioned authority. God rules supremely, and our allegiance is ultimately to God. At the same time, since God has ordained civil magistrates, we do also submit to them when and where we can. God exercises His rule through the civil magistrate. Now, if the civil magistrate commands sin or forbids something that God commands, we would say they have departed from their job, which is to be a servant or minister of God. They do have real authority, even if it's not supreme, all-encompassing, and unquestioned authority. So also in the home, parents are not the absolute unquestioned authority. If mom or dad command sin, or if they forbid you to do something God commands... A child has the, the, the obligation to disobey their parents. Why? Because 
God forbids sin. And God is the ultimate authority. We're all in agreement that God rules supremely, that our allegiance is ultimately to God. At the same time, since God has ordained this institution called the family and has placed mom and dad as the, the, uh, the, the, the leaders or the authorities in the home, children are expected to submit to their parents. And God exercises His rule in the home through the parents. So a child cannot say, well, show me in the Bible where it says to clean my room. Well, the Bible says, honor your father and your mother. And if your father and mother say, clean your room, then you ought to clean your room. To disobey that command is to disobey God. Parents do have real authority, even if it's not supreme, all-encompassing, unquestioned authority. <clears throat> and if we apply that same line of thinking in the church, we all agree God rules supremely over His church and that, all, that our allegiance must ultimately be to God but since God has ordained a particular leadership structure in the church, congregations do submit to their elders. Elders do have real authority, even if it's not supreme, all-encompassing, unquestioned authority. And then we pointed out that in each of those spheres, there are limitations with regard to authority. The civil magistrate is limited by God to the civil sphere to apply the laws of the land and to enforce them with the sword. Parents, our authority is limited by God to our home to apply the rules of our home and to enforce those rules using the rod of discipline. So in the church, the authority of the elders is limited. By who? By God. To what? To the church where they serve. Applying the law of Christ to the consciences of men using the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. John Owen says it this way, quote, This authority in rulers of the church is neither... I'm going to quote some big words and then I'll, I'll explain them. The authority in the rulers of the church is neither autocratical or sovereign, nor nomothetical or legislative, nor despotical or absolute, but organical and ministerial only. What do those words mean? Autocratical means one person is the, is the sole power. Pastoral authority is not autocratical. It's not that. Nomothetical, you can hear the word nomos, law. Legislative, the, the, the authority of the elders is not to legislate or to make laws. Nor is it despotical, unlimited or unrestrained. Rather, he says it's organical, an old word meaning uh, to use instruments. The elders serve as an instrument and it is ministerial, which means to act under a superior. So, so the authority of the rulers of the church is such where they act as instruments under a superior themselves. Elders do have real authority, even if it's not supreme, all-encompassing, and unquestioned. It's not autocratical, nomothetical, or despotical. It's, but it's real, organical, ministerial authority. Now, we, we pointed out some just don't like the word authority. So, we, we set out to let the Word of God guide our consciences by looking at the various titles given to the office. 
by the Holy Spirit, that is. The Holy Spirit of God gives certain titles. Our job is to receive the Word, observe what the Spirit has given us, and then say, if these are the words the Spirit has used, then I ought to think this way. I ought to act this way. Let, we want to let the Word of God drive us in a particular direction. We had three points. We only covered two of them. First point was that there is one office besides the deacon, one office. The second point is that the office has multiple titles, which are all interchangeable. Pastor, elder, overseer, ruler, leader, steward. So a pastor is an elder. Pastors and elders are overseers. Pastors, elders, and overseers are rulers and leaders. Pastors, elders, overseers are, and rulers, leaders are, stewards. And God's stewards are pastors, elders, overseers, on down the line. They're, they're all interchangeable. A bunch of different words to describe the one office. So now we're going to move to the third point, which is that these multiple titles are meant to reveal a broad work. These multiple titles reveal a broad work. Since all of these titles and descriptions are not describing different offices, then we have to conclude that they are meant by the Holy Spirit of God to give us a full-orbed view of the one office. That's the idea here. So we're just going to walk through these titles. It'll be very simple. Walk through these words and just consider them with a little detail. We could take each of these titles and spend a week on each of them separately because there, there, there's a lot that comes into these titles, but we're just going to spend one evening and then when we get back, Lord willing, next week to Keech, he'll, he'll give us a little more. So, the first and most popular title for this office is the title Pastor. The word pastor is synonymous with shepherd. They mean the same thing. Pastor and shepherd are interchangeable words. As we read in Jeremiah 3.15, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. The King James Version renders it, I will give you pastors. Pastors. Now, we might read that and think, well, well that, that was sort of a, a leap, wouldn't it be, to translate that Old Testament word in the form of a, a New Testament office that wasn't really in existence then? Well, no, it's not a leap because the word shepherd means pastor. The word pastor means shepherd. They are synonymous. Now, the verb form of this term pastor, we, we might say to pastor, the verb form means to lead to pasture, as you lead the animals to the pasture, or set to grazing, or cause to eat, or with a one-word definition, the word pastor means feed, to feed. And it literally refers to all of the duties of a shepherd who tends a flock of sheep. So feeding, taken as a synecdoche for all of the duties required by the shepherd to see to it that the sheep survive. We see it in that verb form in 1 Peter 5, where Peter 
exhorts the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, or pastor the flock. Now, if we don't understand that meaning of the word, we would say, what does it mean to pastor the flock? You mean fulfill the office? No, the word pastor means feed, set to grazing, take care of, tend to, all of the duties of a shepherd for his flock. He's saying, do that for those who are among you. Pastor means shepherd. Now, what can we deduce from this title? What would we expect from a shepherd tending to sheep? I've got six things here, and there there are many more. Number one, he must feed them. A shepherd has to make sure the sheep are fed. And Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, Preach the Word. That's a summary of what it means to feed the sheep. Preach the Word. And so a pastor feeds the flock the Word of God. The Word of God is our bread, our meat and drink as saints in this world. And the pastor's job is to take that Word and open it up to the people, to feed them, to feed their souls. So he must feed them. Secondly, he must lead them. A shepherd has to lead his flock. And we read in Psalm 23.3 of the Good Shepherd, He leads me in paths of righteousness. Now, no shepherd on earth will, will arise to the standard of the Good Shepherd, but we do learn something here of shepherding and spiritual shepherding. A pastor has to use the word of righteousness to instruct and guide the lives of his flock. He must lead them, how? By setting an example, and especially by taking the word of God and saying, here is the direction that you ought to go. A pastor feeds, a pastor leads. Thirdly, he must pay attention to their health and well-being. A shepherd has to take care of and pay attention to the well-being of his sheep. Some of you have had animals. Even just recently, you kind of notice animals acting kind of funny. Something might be wrong. Call the vet. Vet shows up and says, something's wrong here. We've got a problem. Well, what were you doing? You were seeing to the care, taking care or paying attention to the health and well-being of that animal. And a shepherd must do that. Proverbs 27, 23 says, No well the condition of your flocks, and give attention to your herds. So a pastor has to know his flock. He has to, in many cases, just ask, just inquire after their spiritual health. In other cases, he might just be able to watch and he can begin to deduce things. I've noticed this and this and this and this. Your attitude here, your, you've, you've been present at this meeting or you weren't present here and you've been missing this and this and I've noticed this in your conversations. Is something wrong? Is there a problem? A pastor has to pay attention to the health and well-being of the flock. Number four, he must give them comfort and consolation. Psalm 23, 4. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. A pastor, or we could, using the the original meaning, a shepherd has the job of of, uh, bringing or putting his sheep at rest, of bringing comfort and consolation to them, calming them. And so a pastor of a church has to comfort and console his sheep. The sheep of Christ 
are already, in most circumstances, beaten and battered enough by their own consciences, by the world around them, by the devil himself, that they don't need to come into the congregation and have that just be berated and beaten even more. But rather, a shepherd's primary concern should be to comfort and console them, again, with the Word of God, to remind them who they are, what God has done for them, what their hope is in eternity. A a pastor, using Owen's phraseology, must comfort, relieve, and refresh them. Fifthly, he must protect them. A pastor must protect his sheep. Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verses 29 to 31, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. It will happen. It's going to happen, he says. So you better be on watch because you're going to have to protect the sheep. A pastor must protect from false doctrine infiltrating the church. A pastor has to be on guard from false ideologies and mindsets and worldviews that might be being adopted by the people and coming in slowly into the church. A pastor has to protect the flock from dangerous habits or practices that might slip into the church. At first it might be one person, and then that one person might give, uh, give advice or, or, or lead by example to another person. And before long you've got a family or two families who are being led by a worldview that is not according to Scripture. And it's a pastor's job to step in and say, whoa, 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 what are we doing? Did we get this from the Word of God? All right, then it needs to stop before it infiltrates the whole congregation. A pastor has to protect the sheep. If a pastor hears heresy, or sometimes, I would say, anytime he even hears heterodoxy, he must defend the truth. Heterodox is is truth that's at variance with what is historically orthodox. So there's heresy. If you believe this, you're not a Christian. You believe If you don't believe the virgin birth, you believe Jesus was not true God and true man, things like that. There are heresies that separate you from the Christian faith. That's, that's a big problem. That has to be protected from or guarded against. But there's also heterodoxy, which is a belief that might not separate you from the Christian faith, but it's not according to the, the, the orthodox belief of the church, and it's not according to maybe even our confessional standards that we hold in this church. And so a pastor might have to step in and say, we don't believe that here. If you want to believe that, that, that is up to you ultimately, but we don't believe that here. He has to protect. He doesn't want that to spread. If a pastor sees or senses a dangerous trajectory in any of the sheep, he must try to protect them and the other sheep. And sixthly, he must correct them if necessary. A shepherd, if he sees sheep going into a place of danger, he has to correct them to bring them back into safety. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Reprove and rebuke. Show them their error. Point out the wrong way and correct them. When the sheep are in error... The pastor must correct them. 
but he also has instructions on how he is to do that. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, The Lord's servant must correct his opponents with gentleness. Gentleness. He must give correction in a way that Christ would have given correction. We do not approach the sheep of the flock of God as if they were the Pharisees of Christ's day, opponents, open-faced opponents of Christ. They got a certain treatment. That's, that's true. That oftentimes needs to be done. But Christ didn't speak that way to His people who might have been in error. He must give correction with gentleness. And we could go on and on, but the point is clear. An elder is a pastor or a shepherd. That's the word, a word, the Holy Spirit has chosen to use. It means something. We can't just throw it out. It means something. Now, we, we could go on and spend the rest of the time answering this question. If a pastor is a shepherd, then what is uh, expected or what are the implications of those who are the sheep in his charge? But, but that, that'll, that's in the next or in a couple sections in the future. There are implications for these words. The next term is the term elder. Elder. This word is presbyteros, which you can hear there, Presbyterian or presbytery. And it refers literally to an aged man. The word means an old man. But figuratively, it refers to those with insight or experience or rank. And this, this title can sometimes be hard to lay hold of or hard to really want to use especially if the man in question is less than 40 or 50 years old. You kind of feel, feel weird saying, well, he's one of our elders. He was not very old. Well, the term doesn't just mean, it's, it's, or it isn't just using its literal meaning, an old man, but it refers to uh, the office that a man might hold, uh, again, referring to insight, experience, and rank. Remember the priests of the Old Covenant, they entered the office at 30, and they were the teachers and instructors of the law, the priests according to that office. John Owen, again, he's referring to this word. He says, So under the Old Testament, where the word doth not signify a difference in age, but it is used in a moral sense. Elders are the same with rulers or governors, whether in offices civil or ecclesiastical, especially the rulers of the church were constantly called its elders. So if we just set aside the number of years that a man has been alive and think merely in terms of, of an elder, the, the picture that might be applied to a man regardless of his age, again, we understand the term carries with it ideas of dignity and of rank and of office. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.1, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Now here, I think he's talking about uh, literally an older man, although it is the same word, an elder. Why, why is it not okay for a young man to rebuke an older man? Well, because this older man, simply by his age, has gained him a place of superiority. He's not to be spoken to like you would speak to a young man. So if we take that picture... An elder in the church, though he might not have gotten a place of superiority by living more years than you, he does have an office position ordained by Christ that garners for it some measure of respect. 
An older man is typically one that we would look to for insight and experience because he's gained that over many years of his life. Remember, it was the folly of Rehoboam that he did not heed the counsel of the old men, the elders. He should have listened to them, but he didn't. Well, again, setting aside the concept of of years... An elder in the church is one who's been placed by Christ in the church to be sought after for his insight and experience, especially in spiritual matters pertaining to the Word of God. You might not be able to go to an elder and say, hey, tell me what it was like back in the 70s. Because he wasn't born in the 70s. But you can say, hey, what about this passage of Scripture, this, this spiritual matter? What are your thoughts on this? Because that's his area of expertise, so to speak, not just years. An older man carries around with him this reality. He started before we got here. He's been here longer. He's ahead of us. He's gone before us, so to speak. So also, an elder in the church, while he may not have started before you historically, but the fact that his duty is to labor in the Word... And in spiritual things, usually means, not in every situation, but it usually means he's had the opportunity and the tools and the help and the time afforded to him to move at a quicker pace through matters of a spiritual nature, simply by the way of his office. We read in Acts 15 too, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, And debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now it's hard for us to imagine the great apostle going to Jerusalem to meet with the elders of that church to to bring a matter to them. Well, he was the apostle. Why couldn't he just make a judgment? Well, the, the, the fact of the matter is the elders in Jerusalem, many of them, were probably converted before Paul was. They probably had more years and experience, but there would eventually come a time when Paul would get this reputation as the great apostle where the elders of Jerusalem would have to heed the words of the apostle himself. It wasn't about age necessarily, but about the office. Usually, all things being equal, just again thinking of the the literal use of the word, an older man, an older man will usually have the place of leadership or rule. Nobody in their right mind likes to go, in, go into work one day where you've been working 20 or 30 years and say, hey, we've appointed a new supervisor and he's you know, a kid fresh out of college and he's not been there at all, no experience, he's going to be our boss. That, that doesn't usually fly with most people. What in the world? This is, this is not right. This is not this. This is not that. Because it's, it's sort of understood that time and tenure and experience gains a man a position where he is the superior. That's, that's according to the natural meaning of the word elder. Well, elders of the church also, by way of office, have a place of leadership or of rule. Not because they're older, but because of the office. 1 Timothy 5.17 refers to the elders who rule well. 
1 Peter 5, 5 says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, if someone is subjective or subjected to someone else, they're in subjection, that means the, the ones that they are in subjection to are over them. That's the logical meaning of that. And we do see that explicitly in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, where Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. These are all implications of the term elder. So pastor, elder. The third term is the word overseer, or the King James translates this word bishop. Overseer. The word is episkopos. You can hear the word episcopal or episcopalian in that term. It means literally to look over or to watch over. And metaphorically, like a watchman or a guard, you can imagine a shepherd sitting on a hill watching over the flock below him, keeping watch over them to oversee. Now this is really interesting to me. In Luke 19.44, Jesus says that Jerusalem did not know the time of its visitation. You remember that story, old Jerusalem, Jerusalem? You did not know the time of your visitation. Peter says in 2 Peter 2.12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That word visitation is this word overseer. What's the idea in, in these pictures? You didn't know the time of your visitation. Glorify God in the day of visitation. What's the picture? Well, the idea in, in both of these instances, whether good or bad, is that God is coming. That God is coming to make what comes across almost like an unexpected visit to take account of what's happening and then to render a judgment based on what He sees. God is coming to look in on His people and then act according to what He finds. That's the picture. The day of visitation, God is coming to check upon things. Well, an elder, as an overseer, is one who looks over, who watches. He looks in on the congregation. He takes account of what's happening. And to use the term or, or a form of that word visitation, he visits and assesses situations. He evaluates the circumstance in which the church finds itself. He's far more than a preacher. If we want to use this word, he's a visitor. He's one who comes to watch over and to see how things are happening, how things are going. Now the difference obviously is that a pastor in this, in this sense doesn't just pop in or just look in from time to time. He does that but according to his office, he's always about the business of oversight. His, his whole life is a day of oversight, of visitation, of by, of, of by way of his office, overseeing or watching over the church. And this is clearly again related to the idea of shepherding because a shepherd must always be watching over his flock, seeing to the condition of his flocks, and remember, God always comes with action on a day of visitation. He doesn't just come to, to look around the corner and then pop His head back in. He's not just coming to get information because God knows everything. 
For God to come on a, a day of visitation, God's day of oversight is a day of action. God's showing up to act. And so a pastor, when he is exercising this oversight, when he's watching over the flock, he's doing that in order to act upon what he sees. He assesses in order to determine what needs to be done here. His oversight is performed in order that he might then decide what to do. He's not just looking. He's looking in preparation to act. He is an overseer. The next title is ruler or leader. Ruler, I'm going to put these two together, ruler or leader, because the, the ideas are, are intertwined. Again, 1 Timothy 5.17 refers to the elders who rule. And then Hebrews 13.17, obey your leaders or obey them that have the rule over you. This same term is used in Matthew 2.6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for, you, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, clearly this is speaking of Christ Himself. But you see, there's a connection between a ruler who is also a shepherd. A pastor, an under-shepherd, is also an under-ruler or leader. This ruler or leader is one who presides over a group or a meeting, who executes or enforces laws. Again, he doesn't write the laws. A police officer doesn't write laws. He executes and enforces laws. A ruler or leader is one who governs using delegated authority. Now, there are several ideas that flow into and out of these terms, ruler or leader. Paul in Romans 12, referring to gifts, says the one who leads. That word leads, again, means one who rules over, who manages, who's in charge. Somebody, some people in the church are given gifts that when they come out, it, they come out in managing, of taking charge, of leading. In 1 Corinthians 12... Verse 28, he lists the gifts of administration or administrating. Now this doesn't mean he's really good at spreadsheets and organization necessarily. That might be a part of it. This word, and I found this interesting as well, this word administrating is kubernasis. We've all heard that before, right? You have. Have you ever heard of a gubernatorial election? The election of the governor? We, we get our word government and gubernatorial from this word, kubernasis. The picture of this word, when you hear it from now on, you can keep this in mind. The picture of this word is of a man standing at the helm of a ship, keeping a straight course in the sea, driving or, or making sure that ship goes where it's supposed to go, administrating, steering from the helm. In the list of qualifications for the office, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3.5, if someone does not know how to manage his household, how will he care for God's church? Now, what he's not saying is some men manage households and other men care for God's church, and they're two separate things. No, he's saying the way that these men care for the church is by managing in, a, in the same way that a man manages his household. Managing the household is likened to the pastor's function 
in the church. And his care takes the form of management. And the picture here is, if he can't do it at home, well, he sure can't do it in the church. That's, that's what he's saying. The word manage there is proistemi. It means to lead, to rule, or to govern. Same word that's used in 1 Timothy 5.17 for rule well. If a man can't do it in his home, well, then he surely can't do it in the church. And I would imagine that a lot of men who have a problem with uh, pastoral authority, the, the reason that they have a problem with it is because they're not leading in their homes. They, they've not adopted that in their homes. They don't have any type of structure of authority in their own homes. And so when they come into the church, they think, well, there ought not to be no leadership or structure here. That's a problem. If a man can't lead his home, well, then he certainly can't do it in the church. What's the implication? A man is to manage and lead his home, and that is a prerequisite for being able to do it in the church. So there we have the word ruler, leader, or manager, or ship captain. If you want to start using that term, you can. The final word that we have is the word steward. Steward. An overseer, for, this is Titus 1.7, an overseer as God's steward. The word is oikonomos. Oikos, house. Nomos, again, law. Anytime you hear nomos, anti-nomian, deutero, nomi, second, law, anti-law. The word means law, oikos, house. So this word is if we put it together etymologically, house law or the law of the house. The steward is the one over the house. He's a steward. A pastor, elder, as God's steward, is charged with the supervision of the church, which is the household of God. In Luke twelve forty two, we read this. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. That word manager <clears throat> is this word, oikonomos, steward, the faithful and wise steward. Well, what is this steward expected to do? He makes sure the daily, of the, daily affairs of the house are moving, moving smoothly. He makes sure all of the servants of the household are getting everything they need so that the house can be productive. <clears throat> A steward is one who watches over the possessions of another. He's entrusted with the responsibility of proper care, or the proper care, of that which has been entrusted to him by the owner. The steward is not the owner. So, And again, this is what we heard at the beginning from, from Owen. An elder is not autocratical or nomothetical. He's, he's not the sole supreme leader, and he doesn't get to make laws. He is a steward. He's in a ministerial place. The, the elders administer the rule of the owner of the house. He's stewarding that which belongs to another, even <clears throat> Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Steward has been set over the house. He does not own the house. He stewards that stewardship. He takes care of it, always keeping in mind that there will come a day when he hands that stewardship back and he says, here's what I've done with the stewardship. So, 
We have these titles, pastor, elder, overseer, ruler, leader, steward. Whether one likes the idea of the word authority or not, we must reckon with the meaning and implications of the terms that the Holy Spirit has chosen to use to describe the office. And I'll, I'll, I'll quote John Owen again in case he carries any weight. And the reason this is, I've quoted him so many times, he has a, a, a big section on, on all of these things in his works. But he says this, quote, That there is such an authority and rule instituted by Christ in His church is not liable to dispute. He says it's not up for debate. Nobody argues this. And then he, he does what, what, what we just did. He, he lists the words. He says, where there are bishops, pastors, elders, guides, rulers, stewards, instituted, given, granted, called, ordained, and some to be ruled, sheep, lambs, brethren, obliged by command to obey them, follow them, submit unto them in the Lord, regard them as over them. Where you have all of this, which is just the biblical language of a church, he says, there is rule and authority in some persons, and that committed unto them by Jesus Christ. Now, if that makes you nervous, he also says this, and this is important for all of us. The especial design of the rule of the church and its government is to represent the holiness, love, compassion, care, and authority of Christ toward His church. That's a, that's a weighty responsibility. That, that's a big deal. So I would say, yes, elders have real authority. It's limited to the church. It's limited by the Word of God. And its design is to represent Christ Himself. And where any man fails to represent the Christ of Scripture... He's failed in what he's called to do. In conclusion, will we fail? Absolutely. We have failed and will fail many times. And this is why we crave your prayers. And this is why our stewardship, the stewardship of the elders, is always meant to point men to the master of the house but also to remind the congregation about the master of the house. Well, this, this seems a little too far. This seems a little too much. This is a little too invasive. Listen, the master of the house is coming back, and I'm going to answer for what I did with the stewardship. It's a serious thing. We have to keep that in mind. Also, it's important to keep in mind that it's impossible for one man to be gifted and fitted and capable of doing all that we've just seen. And that's why a plurality is the biblical standard. There's not a church in the Bible that only had one pastor. Now, does that happen on occasions? Absolutely. It has. Historically, it's, it, it does. It will. That is often the case. But we strive after a plurality because of the breadth of the, of the office itself. The point in a plurality of elders is not simply accountability. Because two men or five men or eight men or 30 men can rule just as unbiblically and tyrannically as one man, perhaps even more. 
If they join their arms and say, hey guys, let's just push this through. They can do that. It's not just accountability. The point of a plurality is to satisfy the breadth of necessary giftedness required to lead and feed the sheep of Christ. And, and for a church, I'll add this, for a church to expect all of this out of one man, that's ecclesiastical tyranny. Demanding one man to do all of this, that's tyranny. The truth of the matter is, we're all of God's men elders. We're every one of us pastors. We could not fill up a tiny pocket, the toe pocket of Christ's shoe. We can't do it. It's all meant to point to Him to show all of His fullness. And if we are all pastors, we would say, we can't even touch the breadth of Christ's rule. So clearly in this we see the great majesty of the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus, who bears in Himself, all by Himself, all of these properties, all of these graces, in the fullness of perfection, and He never fails. Not once. And this is why regardless of the number of elders or pastors a church may or not, may not have who do have real authority, it is Christ alone who retains supreme authority over His churches. Christ is the head of His church. No man. We, we, we believe that. The Pope of Rome is, is that, that man of sin. He's not the head of the church. But we also believe that there are, there are no popes in our little churches here. Christ is the sole head of His church. Well, let's close in prayer.